Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 189. COVID-19. That's right, brothers and sisters, COVID-19, this has to end. And now that we're headed into the seventh month of this, here in the United States, where we continue to set records, many of us have fully accepted that this is going to last a long time, much longer than we thought it would last back in March. And given the pitfalls of human behavior, which we've discussed on this show, and the political landscape surrounding us, which has not done a great job in ending this nightmare, there's a lot of attention now turning to what seems to be the only thing that could truly end this. A vaccine. This is a show that usually deals with the psychology and neuroscience, and sociology, and social science of reasoning and decision-making and self-delusion and human behavior. So at first, when I was gathering interviews for this episode, I thought the focus would be explaining a few polls by Pew and others that came out not too long ago, which all found that a third to one-half of Americans, of United States citizens, would not get a vaccine. They said they would not get vaccinated against COVID-19, even if the vaccine was available right now, easy to get, and free. So, I thought that this was another example of the tribal signaling we detailed in our episode about anti-maskers. In short, I thought, as with masks and staying home instead of going to restaurants and bars, in a very polarized time, a fact-based issue had become politicized vaccinating or refusing to vaccinate was going to be another badge of loyalty or a symbol of shame, depending on who you considered us and who you considered them. And unaware that this is what is motivating these sorts of attitudes, people would search for reasons, which they would then communicate and post on social media and portray in punditry and so on with justifications and rationalizations tailored so that they would seem reasonable to the people who share their values. But as I gathered interviews about what might have led to this particular vaccine hesitancy, it became clear very quickly 
that this behavior was driven by something else, something completely different. So that's one thing we're going to talk about in this episode at length. Another thing we're going to talk about is just how impactful those anti-maskers have been, but not in the way you might think. The widespread refusal to wear masks and to social distance and to lock down and to not reopen schools and to quarantine and so on has led those people who are now responsible for creating and distributing a vaccine to ask for help from science communicators, to ask for help from social scientists who study persuasion, who study social change, who study resistance to ideas like this, who study conspiracy theories. They're asking those people to help when it comes to encouraging the public when it comes time to give them this vaccine. In this episode, you will hear from two such people who are consulting with those institutions in that way. And you will hear what they told those institutions when they asked, um, how do we avoid what happened with masks when it comes to this vaccine? Because it's very important that when the vaccine comes out, as many people as can be encouraged to do so, take that vaccine. That's the only way we'll get out of this. And you'll hear more about that in a minute. And third, we're going to hear from a social scientist who years ago discovered the most effective way to persuade people who are hesitant to vaccinate both themselves and their children. And it's not something that is often used in these persuasive attempts. So you're going to hear all about that, including the best way to reach those people we often label as anti-vaxxers. But first, before all of that, some good news. There will be a vaccine for COVID-19. This will end. But please, don't take my word for it. Here is not only an expert, but perhaps the expert on this topic, Dr. Paul Offit. Hi, my name is Paul Offit. I am the director of the Vaccine Education Center and a professor of pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a professor of vaccinology at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. If you can believe it, he's being humble. Dr. Offit has worked with the CDC, has written books about how to communicate science to the public, and he's the co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine, and he's written books about vaccines and how anti-vaxxers have hounded him forever about his efforts to promote them and to explain them to the public. So he's in high demand right now. In fact, when I spoke with him, he had just ended like six minutes earlier, a live on-air interview with CNN. Right. I mean, suddenly virologists and epidemiologists are being sought after to be on television. This, I think, is one of the signs of the apocalypse. <laughs> um, you know, the, the demands on my time have never been greater. I've never been busier. I mean, I do. I you know, just got off CNN today. I, I was on CNN on Jake Tapper's show yesterday. I mean, suddenly virologists are cool. This is a bad sign. I expected you to say this is great, but no, in all the movies, uh, whether it's an alien invasion or it's a zombie apocalypse, when the experts like yourself are on TV nonstop, that's usually the scene before everything crumbles and collapses and a bunch of people are trapped in a basement. And that scares me a little bit. Exactly. That's exactly what we are. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Great. Uh, I expected to be uh, comforted and, and patted on the head and, and go about my day, but that is not going to happen. Before we get into psychology and politics and all the rest, I thought it might be useful to hear from the expert 
how vaccines are made and where we are in the process right now. So the first thing that I asked Offit was, point blank, will we have a vaccine? And if so, when? And this is what he said. I do think we'll have a vaccine by early next year. The, the strategies that have been used to make these quick vaccines, I mean, the ones that I think are going to roll off the assembly line first, um, are basically what I guess we would call in the vaccine world plug and play vaccines. So in other words, you know um, the part of the virus you're interested in. You're interested in that spike protein that emanates from the surface of the virus. If you can make antibodies to that spike protein, then you can prevent the virus from binding to cells or said another way, you can prevent the virus from infecting you. And so you know that, and you also know the gene that codes for that virus. So, so what's been done is, is you've basically taken that gene and just used the gene itself, the so-called messenger RNA vaccines, which means you're inoculated with that gene, the gene that is translated to the spike protein, and then you make antibodies to the spike protein. So you make the, the, uh, the protein, the coronavirus protein, and you make antibodies to the protein. It's the same idea for the DNA vaccine. It's the same idea for these so-called replication defective simian or human adenovirus vaccines. We just plug in that coronavirus gene, and then your body makes the protein, and your body makes the antibodies, and the same thing with so-called vectored vaccines. The reason that those are the first ones, those are the ones you're hearing about, Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, those are all in that category, is that they're very easy to construct. You just put the gene in there, and they're very easy to mass produce. That's why they're the first ones that are going to roll off the assembly line. That's the good news. The bad news is there is no commercial experience with any of these vaccines vaccine strategies for any vaccine that we have ever used in the United States. So it, it, there is going to be a learning curve, I suspect, over the next couple of years as we watch these novel vaccine strategies roll out. Where have we used vaccines like this before? Where, what is the precedent for using anything like this? Well, the only example would be there is a so-called vectored vaccine, meaning you take a virus that has a fancy name like vesicular stomatitis virus, which doesn't cause disease in humans, but can reproduce itself in humans. And then you can clone into that, for example, a gene that codes for an Ebola virus protein. So it's been used. That's one of the strategies that was used to, uh, to eliminate Ebola or try and eliminate Ebola in West Africa. Um, similarly, another strategy was to take a replication defective uh, human adenovirus type 26, and that was Johnson & Johnson's product. Again, you just genetically engineer it to contain that uh, that coronavirus uh, gene that codes for the spike protein. Um, so there, there is some experience in West Africa with those vaccines, but again, none in the United States. If I'm hearing you correctly, we have the, the, the scientific know-how, we have the medical knowledge and understanding about how to do this. And we're doing it. And so we're going to do it. And there's going to be a vaccine. Uh, is that correct? That's correct. So that's the good news. We will have a vaccine for COVID-19. COVID-19! COVID-19! Now, perhaps you heard Dr. Offit say we would have a vaccine by early next year. But he also told me that at the earliest, he thinks a vaccine will become available to the public, to you and me, around the middle of next year. Notice I said available to you and me. And this is where things start to get weird, problematic, psychologically fraught with epistemic chaos. This is where human psychology starts to muddy the waters of these biomedical advancements. Because the public, especially in the United States, is confused about what and who to believe on this matter. So before we go forward, let's try to clarify things. In short, there will be several potential vaccines available, some before the end of this year, but those candidate vaccines must be tested 
a lot before they can be distributed to millions of people. So, so when you do when you do work to try and make a vaccine, you basically do a series of phases that that um, in each of which is designed to reduce uncertainty. In a process that usually takes years, vaccines must first go from the lab to clinical trials, from clinical trials to testing, from testing to distribution. So, for example, you you think you have a way to make a vaccine. You want to give the gene that codes for this particular spike protein. You inject it into people. Um, then the muscle, the the gene enters the muscle. The muscle cell makes the the coronavirus protein. Then you make antibodies. So that's that's your idea. Most vaccines never get out of the lab and into clinical trials, but if they do, they then must go through several phases of testing before they can be administered to the general public. So first, there's the lab, then clinical trials, then more research into those trials, then testing, manufacturing, and finally, quality control. All the while, scientists are studying immunogenicity, toxicity, human response, impact on public health, cost-effectiveness, and so on. The CDC outlines all of this in three phases. So first you do phase one trials, which is to say you try and make sure you have the right dose. Phase one, small groups of healthy people in controlled settings receive the trial vaccine to test its safety and reactogenicity. We then collect data on how people respond to help determine the dose, schedule, and method of administration. Those trials are usually done in 20 to 100 people. That's what you've been reading about mostly in the paper because those are the in, in the newspapers or magazines or online and radio, TV, et cetera, because those are the only studies that have been published are phase one studies, small studies, 20 to 100 people. Phase two, larger groups of people are tested in the field in multiple cities. Variables like age and ethnicity, gender, and so on are added to the testing along with other much more complicated variables that we know can affect an immune response. And all of this is extremely expensive. So we wait until phase one delivers great results before we move on to this phase. In phase two, scientists dial in the perfect preparation, optimal dose, and the best schedule. All the while, the objective is a clinically meaningful outcome, a body of evidence that shows, for sure, as best we can, the candidate is safe and effective. Now you want to make sure that your vaccine is consistently induces an immune response and at least is safe in hundreds of people. So then you go to phase two trials, which involves hundreds and hundreds of people, and, and you want to make sure it continues to be safe and continues to induce an immune response. Finally, and only if everything passes muster, we enter phase three, randomized controlled trials, A-B tests with placebos and the final formulation. And these Phase three trials are huge with thousands and thousands and thousands of subjects conducted in the field under the same conditions we expect to experience should the vaccine be approved. And the goal here is to see if it truly works out there in the real world. That is, does it reduce the numbers of infected in a significant way? Now you're, you're talking about tens of thousands of people who either get the vaccine, get a placebo vaccine, meaning just an inert substance, and then you see, you want to make sure that, the, that there's far more people that get sick in the placebo group than get sick in the vaccine group. So, so when a vaccine finally is licensed, or in this case, I think approved through emergency use authorization, EUA, at least you'll know that it was, has a certain level of efficacy. Let's say 75% of people are protected against moderate to severe disease for a certain length of time, let's say four months, six months, eight months, and that it, at least it hasn't caused any serious side effect 
in 20,000 people. So we're not there yet. Right now, we're just moving it out of the lab and into trials, and those trials are taking place all over the world. We are testing many potential vaccines in many labs, and there are many candidates for the one that will end this nightmare. And normally, with each candidate, this early part of the process would take years. But with COVID-19, we're facing something so dangerous, so shattering to our way of life, that we've had to rise to an enormous challenge. And we have. Scientifically, we have achieved something here that is unprecedented, something we could and should be proud of as a species. Among scientists, this is incredible. No, it, re- it really is. I mean, we've a vaccine has never been in people and even close to out in the in the public this quickly. That's biologist and science communicator Joe Hansen. I'm Joe Hansen. I'm host of It's Okay to Be Smart on YouTube. I'm a science communicator, a science writer, and a nerd. Like Paul Offit, Joe told me this was like one of those sci-fi movies where, in a moment of crisis, the world's best minds have come together to work on a project with billions of dollars behind it to benefit all of humanity. In fact, when I spoke with Joe, he had just earlier that day been shooting video for his YouTube channel at one of the labs where a potential vaccine was being developed. This morning, I was just doing a story in a lab, uh, in the lab that figured out what the like the three-dimensional molecular shape of the coronavirus spike protein, which sounds very technical. But that's the thing that all of the vaccines that are currently in development or leading candidates, at least, are modeled after. That's what they're putting in people in order to test and try to to develop immunity. That's the thing. Like they figured out what it looks like, not you know, less than a year ago, and it's already in people being tested. And it's uh, it's sort of blowing my mind about how 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 science has advanced to be able to do that. And Joe and Paul Offit both told me this is happening faster than we ever thought possible by a factor of like ten. I mean, this is something that takes years and decades. The lab I visited today, this researcher worked on a vaccine seven years ago that is still in clinical trials today. Yet they started work in January and 66 days later or something like that, they had protein in phase in people in a phase one vaccine trial. So it's, it's, there are parts of the vaccine process you can speed up and there are parts you can't. And what they've done, like the basic research parts, those are the areas when the advancements of, of biology and physics are and chemistry are allowing them to, um, to shrink that down uh, to, to that unprecedented scale. And this brings us to our first major point. We haven't completed phase three yet, but when we do, that part of the process won't be moving at this incredibly rapid rate. It will be faster than usual, but not much, because the part that you do that determines the safety and efficacy, the part that involves manufacturing this and distributing it and communicating to the public how to get it and then making that possible, well, it has to happen the way it happens. And that takes a minute. Although this vaccine is being made much quicker than any vaccine in history, the the, the phase three trial that, that these vaccines are being held to is, is, is typical of what happens with vaccines. That's not to say we couldn't have rushed this part. But we aren't, at least not so far, because when President Donald Trump suggested it would be rushed, that he wanted it to be rushed, scientists and doctors like Paul Offit began stating publicly that they were concerned. 
They started saying in interviews that we shouldn't allow the president or any politician to pressure drug companies to put out a vaccine before it's ready. Dr. Fauci and others who advised the president had to counter his declarations and clarify the position of the U.S. government. And it was around that time that these polls came out showing that the general public was far more hesitant to vaccinate than anyone thought they would be, which made for a sort of click-baitish headline suggesting that maybe in this strange political landscape full of conspiracy theories, some of them supported and retweeted by the president, a world now populated by anti-maskers who hold rallies to express their anger and discontent, a marketplace of ideas where people who believe Bill Gates is trying to take over the planet by creating a vaccine that, when it goes mandatory, will scramble your brain, all that. Well, it seemed like, oh no, half of the country might be about to go full anti-vaxxer. And that was my fear, I have to admit that. When I asked Paul Offit about these polls, that was what I was wanting to understand. What did he think? And when I asked him about this finding that a third to one half the public wasn't currently willing to get a vaccine, he told me something that completely surprised me. I asked him this, what did you think of these polls? And he said, I think I would have been one of the ones that said I wouldn't get it. (laughs) Here's why I say that. Um, Number one, I I, want to see the data first. I want to see the data to make sure that in my age group, the over 65 age group, that this vaccine has been adequately tested, that there's been a representative subgroup in those original trials, and that it induced an immune response which was protective. Because often people who are older don't develop as good of an immune response, either as as vigorous or as long-lasting. I'd like to know that. Um, two, you know, I'm a little nervous right now about, about the FDA. I mean, the FDA approved through emergency use authorization hydroxychloroquine, which they shouldn't have done. I mean, it, they were pressured by the administration to do that. They, they allowed it to happen when very quickly we found out that not only did it not work to treat or prevent uh, COVID-19, it caused cardiac arrhythmias, heart arrhythmias in one of every 10 people that got it. So... So I, I just I, I want to I would my response to that would be I would see the data. So when people ask that question and CNN did a poll that even was even more depressing, where about half of the Americans said they wouldn't get the vaccine. Um, the, the, it's, it's really not the right question because you're asking people whether they get a theoretical vaccine. I mean, the, the real question is, would you get a vaccine that has this level of efficacy for this length of time? Would you get this vaccine and knowing it's been in 20,000 people? Yeah, I think everybody should be skeptical about anything they put in their body, including vaccines. And so they 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 should should put the, you know, the 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 uh, the FDA in a position of explaining what exactly you know about this vaccine and what you don't know before you, before you're being asked to get it. With Trump saying one thing and doctors saying another about something that right here on this show just took us 20 minutes to unpack, Offit said it made sense to him that people polled right now would be hesitant, especially if you don't particularly like or trust the current administration, and about half of the country feels that way. Especially right now, right before an election, where people's motives are in question. Now, that's not to say that people should not get a vaccine that's gone through all the proper testing. Yes, please do get this vaccine. It's just Offit and others were worried a few weeks back that such a rushed vaccine might be a possibility. And so he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times saying that, asking drug manufacturers not to allow themselves to be bullied. 
Yeah, and no, I think that's why it's so important to be as transparent and honest about this as you can. And 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 that's what. And one thing that does worry me. I mean, Dr. Ezekiel, Ezekiel Emanuel and I wrote an op-ed about this in the New York Times. You know, let these phase three trials go to completion. Don't don't be bullied by or don't be influenced by the fact that an election's coming up at the beginning of November, and you want to sort of make sure that. You know, you get a bump before before that and, and release these vaccines before they're ready or that you're influenced by what happens in China or Russia or the United Kingdom to release if they release their vaccines earlier to release your vaccine before or your vaccines before they've been adequately tested, because then you play right into the hands of the anti-vaccine people. And then you really do give them infra- ammunition. They really don't have ammunition now. I mean, vaccines are arguably the best tested things we put into our body. And anytime people have concerns about vaccines, even if they're biologically um, implausible, like vaccines cause autism or diabetes or whatever, you know, studies are done to answer those questions. So we've been very good about this. And don't don't play into their hands by releasing any vaccines before they're really ready to be released. So that is what worries me a little. And you really have to hand it to Dr. Offit here, because after that op-ed, the manufacturers who are part of Operation Warp Speed, which is the U.S. government's name for this highly funded, highly accelerated project, published a formal pledge to all the major news organizations stating to the public that they absolutely would not submit a vaccine for FDA review until they completed the proper phases. The CEO of Pfizer, Albert Borla, he said this, quote, with increasing public concerns about the processes that we are using to develop these vaccines, and even more importantly, the processes that will be used to evaluate the vaccines, we thought it was critical to come out and reiterate our commitment. So, You might would think that this would assuage our fears, those polls would start to sort themselves out, and that we could move forward in a new landscape of, okay, I get it, it's going to take a minute, and I will get that vaccine when it comes, thank you very much. All you people out there who I trust, who know more about this and are in control of this, thank you. But then the confusion started back over again, and here's how it happened. The director of the CDC just now, like while I was recording this show, told Congress the same sort of things you've been hearing here from Dr. Offit. Here's Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana asking CDC Director Robert Redfield, when are we going to get this vaccine? Tell me, uh, tell me when, when you think we'll have a vaccine as best you can ready to, to administer to the public, Dr. Redfield. Well, I think as uh, Dr. Cadillac said, I think there will be vaccine that initially be available sometime between November and December, but very limited supply and will have to be prioritized. If you're asking me when is it going to be generally available to the American public so we can begin to take advantage of vaccine to get back to our regular life, I think we're probably looking at third, late second quarter, third quarter, 2021. And so you think by the late second and thir- or third quarter, we will have started to, to uh, vaccinate people? I think the vaccination will begin in November, December, and then we'll pick up, you know, and it'll be in a prioritized way, those first responders and those at greatest risk for death. And then eventually that will expand. You know, there's about, it's hard to believe, but there's about 80 million people in our country that have significant comorbidities that put themselves at risk. So right. They have to get vaccinated. And, and, and then the general public. As you heard, Redfield 
told Congress what Offit told me at the opening of this episode. We will most likely have candidates for testing by the end of the year. One of those candidates will likely be the one, but we still have plenty of testing to do. And after that, we won't be able to manufacture and distribute the one to the public in millions of doses until at least mid-2021. Which brings us to this week, when a reporter asked Donald Trump for some kind of clarity after that hearing. And he said this. But then he said that the vaccine for the general public likely would not be available until probably next summer, maybe even early fall. Are you comfortable with that time? No, I, I think he made a mistake when he said that. It's just incorrect information. I think he got the message maybe confused. Maybe it was stated incorrectly. No, we're ready to go immediately as the vaccine is announced. And it could be announced in October, could be announced a little bit after October. And uh, no, he's, uh, that's incorrect information. He, he was clear in the way he yeah, said Yeah, well, it, I think so, but I don't think he means that. I don't think he, when he said it, I believe he was confused. I, I'm just telling you, we're ready to go as soon as the vaccine happens. So when do you want to see it available? What would be a timeline? I, I would say that, we, yeah, we will start distributing it immediately. But to uh, the general public. Not to the general public very shortly. There, I mean, it really to the general public immediately. When we go, we go. We're not looking to say, gee, in six months we're going to start giving it to the general public. No, we want to go immediately. No, it was an incorrect statement. Confused? A little bit? Well, that is the point of this episode. Mixed messaging is making things much more difficult than they should be, and that is a major contributor to the problem, to the spread of this virus, to the difficulties we continue to have when it comes to flattening the curve. Despite the fact that we already knew not to allow politicians to take over the messaging to the public in the way that they have, during this pandemic. There's even a manual that the CDC created years ago called the Crisis and Emergency Risk Communication Guide, which outlines how, based on social science and their vast experience with past health crises, to best talk to the public during a pandemic. And it plainly states in Chapter 5 that the most important role in a situation like this is to have a single spokesperson who is an expert on the matter who is considered trustworthy and credible, who provides clarity and sets clear expectations, which makes a politician a pretty bad choice for all of this, especially if that politician is not an expert, doesn't have great approval ratings, especially if that politician is controversial, and especially if that politician routinely contradicts experts, and especially, especially, especially if they contradict those experts during official briefings to the public. Um, some countries are doing that and doing it well. And uh, our country has been kind of a scattershot of messages um, and, and, you know, very politicized from the beginning. That's psychologist and neuroscientist Jay Van Bavel. My name is Jay Van Bavel. I'm a psychology professor at New York University. Like Paul Offit, like Joe Hansen, I caught Jay Van Bavel on the same day he was being consulted for his expertise. In this case, he had been brought in front of the United Nations, who asked a group of social scientists to come and consult them and ask them, how do we go about messaging in a time like this? How can we best 
prepare people and inform them so that they will get this vaccine. So I was invited to a meeting with a number of scientists and professional communications experts uh, that are working uh, in part with the United Nations and Purpose to try to figure out what are some of the issues we're going to encounter in terms of convincing people to take a vaccine once we've had one that's scientifically assessed and validated. And it turns out that that's a big problem that we're going to be facing as a globe in a few months. In the second half of the show, after the commercial break, we will get into what he told them, what he advised, along with what the other experts in this show have to add about how you should message in a time like this, given that things are already confusing, given that we've already messed up so bad. But before we take that break, here's what he had to say when I asked him, given that we already know what we should be doing, given that we already have this manual, why didn't we do that? What do you think, why do you think that was? Why did we do that? Considering we have, not only do we have this booklet, which was prepared way back when and is constantly updated, but we also have the brain, one of the greatest brain trusts that's ever been assembled in the history of human uh, kind, maybe absolutely the best. The United States can pull in experts from every discipline there is, including uh, experts in messaging, whether you want to go with a social scientist or you want to go with someone who works in PR advertising or whatever. I mean, even the military has uh, people who do that for a living. How could this, how could we have fucked this up so bad is what I'm trying to ask. (laughs) (laughs) To be blunt. Um, Yeah. So I get, I think it's a great case where, I mean, a tragic case where it goes to show that you can have all the experts in the world. And if you don't listen to them, then, or if you actively interfere with what they're suggesting, then it means nothing. Um, in fact, you could argue maybe it was harmful because then you had mixed messages and that led to confusion among, you know, some people as well. So this is basically the, the worst case scenario. Um, the, the optimal strategy is you have those people, you bring them in a room, you get their advice and you let them lead the response. Um, so that would be like a, a wise strategy, right? Um, just put, you know, I, this was my advice when I was starting a lab, you know, get the smartest possible people smarter than you, and then listen seriously to what they say. And that's a good strategy for success in pretty much every walk of life. And especially during an emergency. So that would be, I think like the typical strategy, um, what we have in the U S the context we're in is one in which there's extreme polarization. And so, that is basically like a dry forest and all it takes is a match to set it on fire. And so that is the context we're in. We have hyperpartisan news sources. We have misinformation and conspiracy theorists that are being shared even today by the president of the United States. And so that's the situation that we're in. Um, and, and that's the misinformation culture and the hyperpartisan dynamic that we live in. And so that's pretty much like the worst possible uh, context, I think, in which to have this unfold. And then the second thing I'll just say is, if you look at the pandemic, it, it's unveiled all these other problems we have in society, right? So this is not just an issue of leadership. This is an issue of structural inequality. It, look at the communities that have been hardest hit. It's uh, black minority communities, poor communities. Um, there's a lot of people who you know lose their health care when they lose their job. And so we've created a culture that is almost like uh, perfectly vulnerable to this type of situation. In the United States, the press conferences are 
politician-led. The scientists are hanging out in the corner, and and uh, that's weird, right? That is weird. Um, and one of the recommendations that some governments use is to lead with the scientists. They they actually put the scientists out, and the government doesn't speak. So, and this is not un common even in the United States. So if you think back to the Ebola epidemic, you almost never saw Barack Obama talk about it because he let the scientists lead the press conferences. Um, and so in some countries, the scientists have become famous because they're the ones leading the daily or weekly uh, press events. Yeah. Hmm. It is, it isn't, it isn't it odd in these moments that seems like it almost seems like they have a meeting and they're like, so is anybody here a expert in social science? And then like they have a couple of people come in and they give them some uh, advice and then they leave and go, all right, let's do the opposite of all of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, that's how it works with the exception that they don't first invite the social scientists in. Uh, they're, they're just probably never in the room unless they're an economist. I think economists are allowed to those conversations, but that's about it. So that's the bad news. But just because we've handled messaging to the public poorly up to this point doesn't mean we can't do a much better job going forward using the tools of psychology, using the tools of the social sciences, using our experience from previous health crises. And that is what we're going to talk about in the second half of this episode. You will hear from these experts and an epidemiologist who studies persuasive messaging directed at the vaccine hesitant what they recommend the U.S. government and all governments must do starting now to get people to actually take this vaccine, which will be the result of an incredible, unprecedented, astonishing effort driven by the biological sciences. Because as we've seen, in the end, it all comes down to human behavior and the cognition that motivates it. We know a whole lot about that. We just have to use it. All that after this break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you. 
so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash 
not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. I'm David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. I'll just ask all everybody listening right now, close your eyes and imagine for a moment that a politician you despise strolled, struts up in front of a bunch of cameras and says, the vaccine is now safe. I want you all to take it. And would you take it um, if they're telling you to do so? Or would you take it if the most famous or trusted scientists on Earth uh, said the same thing? And for me, I would trust a scientist more than a politician I don't trust. And so if, if it was a politician recommending it, I'd want to see them take it. And in fact, that's what I think politicians should do. Um, they should s- stroll up on stage, get a doctor or nurse to inject the vaccine if they really trust it. Um, that would be the most powerful messaging you could have. But then you're going to need politicians from across the spectrum to do that. So I'd rather rather have the scientists uh, do the presentation and uh, demonstrations. That was psychologist and neuroscientist Jay Van Bavel, who we spoke to earlier in the show. He was recently invited by the United Nations, in fact, on the day of this interview, to join other scientists like himself and advise them on how to effectively promote the coming COVID-19 vaccine and to counter misinformation surrounding it, which everyone is pretty sure will be a problem, something we must contend with when the time comes. So um, what did the United Nations ask you just roundabout? Like, what did they ask you and what did you say back? Um, So they had a number of questions for us as a a panel. Um, And they asked us, you know, what are going to be the barriers to people? What are going to be the most powerful ways to uh, distribute the vaccine? And so I'll tell you some of our suggestions, but the key issue here is that we need more and more research on this. In fact, I would argue this might be the most important research uh, goal right now for the next four to six months in the social and behavioral sciences. Um, And if they're spending $9 billion developing the vaccine, you'd think they'd want to spend at least, you know, one-tenth or one-hundredth of that on strategies around how they're going to distribute it um, when it comes out. And, And it just seems like the amount of uh, intelligence and money that's going towards this right now is just like, other than a handful or a few dozen people, I, I don't think a lot of people are doing this work. It's it's microscopic in terms of the investment compared to the development of the vaccine. Um, and just to be clear, vaccines don't save people. Um, actually, getting vaccinated is what saves you. <laughs> so you can have the world's best vaccine, but if people aren't using it, it's of no value to the people who aren't using it. So, um, so that's why this piece, this is kind of like the last stage uh, of the pro- of the scientific process. It needs to be vetted and analyzed and uh, proper rigorous studies done. Um, so, th- so that's kind of where we're at. And then what we said, uh, we pointed out that there's some communities who are going to be reluctant to get vaccinated. So in the Gallup poll that came out a few weeks ago, the only segment of society that had less than 50% support for the vaccine, if it was free, was Republicans. Um, So we've talked, I know you've talked a lot in your show about masks and distancing, and there's kind of a stubborn partisan gap on those issues. Um, Well, you're already seeing about a 35-point gap between Democrats and Republicans in willingness to get a vaccine. And this is before one's even developed. 
So you can imagine how that might be politicized when it actually comes out. Why would Republicans be more hesitant to get vaccinated? That seems, it seems like anti-vaxxers are more often than not left-leaning, at least, you know, in the, in the limited literature we have. So why in this case is it flipped? Yeah, I, I was surprised by that result too. Um, I, I think that it might be part of just general anti-science rhetoric mm. or populist rhetoric or something signaling about just um, skepticism about the way the scientists have talked about the pandemic. So it might be kind of wrapped up in piggybacking on those other issues. Um, I, I do have a hunch that if it was developed very quickly and Donald Trump was president and advocated aggressively for it and Fox News advocated aggressively for it, that Republicans would take it. So I, 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 that would be my prediction if I had to make one. Um, but I do think that given that poll, if uh, Republicans, if Donald Trump loses the presidential election and, and the vaccine comes out under the Biden administration, man, I don't know if Republicans, may, you know, if a lot of Republicans will abandon it. And ideally what you do is either the politicians step back and just let the scientists lead so it doesn't become political or else politicians from across both parties get on stage or on the steps in front of Congress and all get vaccinated together. You're going to need some kind of massive, unprecedented gesture of solidarity around it uh, from a political perspective, I think. You're going to have to, it's going to have to be The Rock. The Rock is going to, <laughs> you're going to have to find, you got to get a, it can't be a scientist, a doctor, or a politician. It's going to have to be a celebrity that is a lot of a cachet in the, uh, in the conservative domain. I don't know exactly who the number one person would be for some reason. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. The rock comes to mind. If the rock does it, Clint Clint Eastwood, that's it. There we go. That is it. There should be a $1 billion or a hundred million dollar effort. That's just this chump change in this to get Clint Eastwood to take, to take that vaccine live on stage. And then like, um, and then do one of those plungers that blows up a bridge for no reason, just a bridge that was already, that was already needed to be destroyed. I did say in this panel, uh, my idea is actually to uh, deputize celebrities. So I would not just get Clint Eastwood, but I would, it, it, you know, Fauci or whoever's in charge of this at the time that it comes out, reach out to all these famous celebrities and, the, and influencers and politicians and get them taking little videos of them getting the vaccine and show how simple and easy and safe it is and then have them put these videos on their Instagram feed or their TikTok or their Facebook and then challenge their friends to do it. So you could almost model that the um, ice bucket challenge that raised all that money for uh, Lou Gehrig's disease and use the same types of structures to make this go viral. Um, and, you, and it would be great to start with people who are well-respected, widely followed, well-trusted, that are kind of the hubs of these big social networks. And then it would hopefully trickle down to people like you and I, uh, trusting and taking the vaccine and signaling to our family and friends to take it. So I think like something that the notion of getting a celebrity is not a bad idea. In fact, it's been used in the past for, for positive health uh, outcomes. So I just think like uh, actually going a step or two further and thinking about how to make that a broader campaign could be powerful. So just to make it very clear, have we said everything there is to say about why this would be? Why would people be hesitant to get this thing? Or is there anything left to say about that? Well, there's other communities that are hesitant. So one is the black community. Um, and, and there's a long history of uh, minority communities, especially the black community, 
um, having a distrust of the medical system. There's not a lot of black doctors and nurses, and there's lots of research about how uh, the black community was treated. There's this famous experiments at Tuskegee. There was a study that came out a couple days ago suggesting that uh, baby black babies uh, who were delivered by white doctors were much more likely to die than if they are delivered by black doctors. And so there is lots of lots and lots of research and historical uh, evidence that that community has been mistreated by uh, medicine. You have to know the ecosystem that you're playing with out there and the kinds of people who might be resistant for different reasons. That's biologist and science communicator Joe Hansen, who you heard from earlier. And like Jay Van Bavel, he has been meeting with one of the groups working on a vaccine, advising them on how to communicate to the public when it becomes available. He wasn't able to say which group, but he did say that he, like Jay Van Babel, told those people who asked for his advice to consider why certain demographics would understandably be hesitant. There's a long history of underserved communities, of communities of color that have um, that, that remember unethical medical testing. They remember having their bodies used in ways that they did not consent to by governments and medical professionals and have uh, in many places an inherent distrust of programs like this, of, of national medical programs. So they have a distrust, I think, uh, lingering from those things. But let me just say this, the, the, the African-American community is also the one that's been devastated the most by COVID, at least in the United States. And so the notion that the most vulnerable community is going to be maybe less receptive to this um, is a huge health risk. So because uh, you have to, you know, we realize that we have to tailor strategies and communication and, and, um, and the way that we engage with these communities in completely different ways, depending on where they're coming from. Um, so for instance, there are a number of people who feel like they are young enough, that they're protected, that, that a vaccine is not the first thing that they think of because they, they don't associate COVID-19 with being a high risk, um, a personal risk, right? The, and so we have a different kind of communication to, to talk to those people about things like long COVID symptoms, the fact that there are fates that are that are not as bad as death, but are still very, very bad and can last for months. Even if you are a younger person who feels healthy, you are not invincible. Um, but there's there are groups um, of you know more traditionally liberal wings that have been resistant to vaccines for certain reasons in the past through distrust for pharma companies, through general distrust of, of, of medication through conspiracy theories that go back to Andrew Wakefield and before that. Uh, so that's a, a, a lack of education and misinformation for a certain population that we have to tackle there. And, and I would say another uh, factor here, according, according to one of my colleagues who was on this panel, suggested that when people are skeptical of uh, things like vaccines, uh, part of it might be driven by they just don't have access to it. And so if they're not near hospitals or don't have the money for it or they don't know that it's free or if it's not free, um, they sometimes say things like, oh, I don't want to get it anyways. But part of it is an issue of access and awareness and accessibility. So those are things that I think are going to be critical to bake in to uh, the delivery of it is making sure that it is free, it's accessible, that uh, different communities, especially ones that have been hit hardest by the pandemic, have probably earliest access to it. Um, but also that members of their community are the ones delivering it to them. Uh, so there's that trust at the community level. So that's a completely different target. And then if we have conservative groups that are associated with the conspiracies that exist around masks and resisting expertise and, and fighting the scientists who are supposed to be advising the government. And so 
each of these groups requires completely different strategies for engagement in order to lower their rate of hesitancy. Because again, scientists can control as much as possible how great a vaccine is, but that doesn't matter unless we increase the percentage of people who take it. And that means, you know, engaging all these different groups. Right. So that's that's the, the key question. I think you need to manage expectations here. That's vaccine expert Dr. Paul Offit. By one, making it very transparent about what you know and what you don't know. We know that in, the, in, in these groups of people, you know, people who are elderly, people who are African-American, people who are members of the Latinx community, people who have these, these particular medical conditions, we know that this vaccine has been shown to be safe in X number of people. We know that it's been shown to be effective at this level for this length of time. Here's what we don't know. Uh, we don't know whether it causes a very rare uh, serious side effect. We will know that by continuing to to look um, through you know through programs like the Vaccine Safety Data Link and others, and and then I think what you need to do is you need to find who the influencers are in these various communities so that you can try and get people to understand again what we know and what we don't know and why it's important to to get on top of this virus. We can get on top of this virus with 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 the vaccine. We can and and I just but but we're not going to be able to do that unless people understand what we know and what we don't know. You can't just sort of in a blanket way say, look, trust us, because I don't think we're living in that age anymore. So you have to be transparent about what you know and what you don't know. Uh, what is what is this pre-bunking thing and how does it help? Yeah, so pre-bunking takes the idea from inoculation theory. So we've been talking about vaccines, right? And one of the ways vaccines work is by you know exposing people to a trace of the virus um, in a way that's not harmful at all to you, but prepares your body to have a uh, immune response. And then once your body has that training, that preparation, then when it encounters the real virus, you know, at a scale that's dangerous, it can fight it off. And that's the, the, one of the original ideas behind vaccinations. Um, the idea has been uh, applied to information. So it originally came out of work, I believe it was in the 60s, by social psychologist Bill McGuire, and he thought, well, can we use that to stop people to get, you know, have their attitude changed by things like misinformation? And so it turns out that if you're exposed a little bit in advance to kind of a small amount of the, the BS that you're going to hear, um, like, for example, fake news or conspiracy theories, and you have obviously the correct information to counter-argue it, then you have the readiness to face it in the real world. And so you kind of get a small dose about what you're going to encounter. And then when you encounter the real thing, your brain, in this case, has built up its own uh, you know, immune response to misinformation. And so I think that is something that there, there's this great game. Um, I forget, I think it's called the Fake News Game by Sander Van Linden at Cambridge University and his colleagues. And I you let my students use this in my classes. And they, they it actually trains you how to use misinformation and fake news. And you start to learn all the little tricks in the toolbox that people are using against you to manipulate and, and uh, lead you to believe certain things and turn you against other people. And you, you play the game and you learn all the, the tools. And then they have many studies now and more, I've, I'm sure, coming out, uh, showing that this makes people more immune or inoculated against uh, real misinformation when they encounter it on social media or in the real world. We had three bullet points for what you should do and three for what we shouldn't do. What would those be? I think the first thing is to communicate the science and how rigorously it's being vetted. So the key here to understand with the vaccine is that even though it's being developed very quickly, 
um, it's using the same protocols that are standard for, for most vaccines. So that would be the, the first thing, just to ensure that people understand that it's gone through those tests and that it's rigorous and that it's safe. Um, the second thing I think would be to make sure that you understand that different populations are going to respond differently and that you have to think carefully about how you're going to get the vaccine to them and how you're going to ensure and, and, con and convince them it's safe and communicate to them and role model the right things to them. Um, and then the third thing I would say is that there is a lot of behavioral science that's baked into all of this. Um, and I'll just give another layer of behavioral science is that when we think of getting people to do the right things, there's a lot of work in behavioral economics about defaults in systems. So for example, I'm at New York University this Monday, I got an email saying you need to get a vaccine before you go back to your office. Um, they set up a tent on campus. I signed up online. I walked there, got my COVID test, got the negative results the next day. And it was so easy and it was structured like a default. I didn't have a choice, but not only did I not have a choice, it was free. It was close. It was easy. Um, and so I just went and did it, even though I, it's the first COVID test I've had, you know, in the five or six months of this pandemic. And so I would want to see tents like that set up in, or at community centers or in parks, in neighborhoods. So you bring the vaccine to the people and send out emails to them through the community newsletters and things. Um, so you use the science from behavioral economics to create a behavior and choice architecture that's going to make it really easy for people to just say yes and then just do it. What are some? What are three things that we should not do, according to social science and your own research, when it comes to encouraging people to get vaccinated? Yeah, so things we should not do is uh, very similar to the mistakes that we made in the first phase of the pandemic, which is have a hyper-polarized person uh, be the messenger for the presentation of the vaccine. Um, the other thing we should do is spread confusing or mixed messages um, or misinformation about it um, as part of our messaging campaign. So that would be a disaster. And then I think the third problem uh, would be if it actually wasn't effective. In fact, I would say that would be the first problem is that if it got rushed through and it got you know administered to a bunch of people and it backfired in some way. And so I think that would be the worst possible situation because then um, other people would not want to take it and it would just fuel the broader anti-vaxxer uh, concerns. It would be, you know, all over the news. It would be, uh, you know, remembered for decades and decades, I'm sure, um, and decrease trust in the medical profession and scientific community and government. So I, th I think that you'd basically need to avoid those three things. That's like stepping on landmines in this situation. And it it's hard to imagine how the government would re recover from that. And once again, like I can just imagine them in the situation room, like, okay, what are the, what, give it, make it simple to me. What are some, what are three things we should, we should not do? And then like you say this and they're like, okay, let's do that. <laughs> so. final segment. The cutting edge of persuasion research, which just so happens to be directed at the vaccine hesitant, involves something called moral reframing. 
We actually did an episode about this. It's a technique. And we did this episode about this technique back in 2016. So a lot has happened since then. And in that episode, we didn't really discuss the application of this technique in the way that we're going to in this episode. But we did cover a lot of what I'm about to tell you. And I've added a little bit more to it. So take all that together. And here is a refresher on moral reframing. First of all, our genes don't solely determine our dispositions, but they determine a lot. Psychologists like Judith Rich Harris, who studies how personalities form, say that our parents and our families have much less influence over our values than our friends and the media those friends help us consume as we grow up. She argues in her book, The Nurture Assumption, that as children, we become socialized and we begin to take on the values and norms of our peer groups. Twins who spend most of their time in different social circles, for example, will often develop different personality types, not just from their parents, but from each other. We seem to get a genetic roll of the dice that makes us lean a little bit more one way than the other, and then we get a cultural roll of the dice when it comes to our peer groups. Add this to our motivations to preserve the integrity of our group identity and our self-concepts, and by the time we can vote, our biology our culture, and our social bonds have made us into the sort of people who, broadly speaking, either embrace change or are slow to warm to it. This is why, if you're born into a conservative family but get a liberal-ish dice roll of genes, there's no guarantee you will end up writing something for your local indie newspaper. It depends on if you find a few other mutants like yourself in high school who can pass along the media of your people. If you do and there are weak incentives to change your outlook, you will likely evolve a worldview that is more progressive and liberal than the dominant surrounding culture you find yourself within. In psychology, all of this falls under moral foundations theory. Traditionally, we've seen morality as the purview of cultural spaces like religion and theology, but today, social scientists see morality as a natural phenomenon, a mixture of nature and nurture. They try to avoid making prescriptive judgments about right and wrong when observing what different populations of humans have to say about such ideas, but the central finding of moral psychology is that although morals vary across cultures, they seem to vary in the same way. Always conservative versus liberal, however you want to define that, which in some circles can be reduced to openness to experience versus fearfulness and caution. Psychologists like Rob Willer say that this is true of all cultures, no matter how big or small they are, be it, quote, an entire nation or a group of people playing a first-person shooter online. Morality is a universal feature of human psychology, and thus scientists presume it serves a vital, adaptive function, end quote. Which is to say, it's evolved. It's something that your genes tell proteins to make in your brain, and the result is behavior and experience and cognition and everything else that comes along with a brain using its percepts to create a model of reality. And the function of morality seems to be to preserve collective welfare, to pull people together into cohesive communities so they can establish and presume trustworthiness in pursuit of shared goals. Thus, each moral code is a random sorting of dice rolls translated into a system of rules 
to regulate behavior for the sake of a particular community. And each culture solves its shared problems with shared norms, attitudes, and values that rest on top of a set of biologically universal moral foundations. Yeah, so it's it's this idea that everyone possesses a set of underlying values that consciously or not uh, shape the way that they form attitudes, the way that they decide whether or not uh, information makes sense to them, so those wh- whether or not to accept facts as they are presented. That is epidemiologist Avnika Amin. I'm Avnika Amin. I'm a fourth-year epidemiology doctoral candidate. So my background is very much science, biology, statistics, uh, almost no psychology training besides, I think, uh, the reading that I've done. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm at Emory University, like I said, doctoral candidate. Uh, my main research area is kind of everything vaccines related. So not just vaccine development and vaccine performance and like actually what the impact vaccines has, but also this other side of things too, um, vaccine hesitancy. You know, if we have an effective product, why aren't people, you know, actually taking it? You know, it, it seems on paper that um, vaccines are just, you know, the most rational, logical thing to do. Um, but, you know, and that's kind of the purpose of what we're talking about. It's not just, um, you know, the rational mind that's at work when we're making decisions about anything. Avnika Amin is a co-author on a paper that applied moral foundations theory to something new, anti-vaxxers. In fact, it pushed ahead that theory by showing it could be used to persuade anti-vaxxers to be less anti-vaccine. But it wasn't something that people were talking about in her academic silo. So how did an epidemiology doctoral candidate become fascinated with moral foundations theory? Right. Well, I have to give credit to that to my mentor, uh, Saad Omer, who is actually the one who kind of came across the idea of moral foundations theory. He's a very avid reader, um, finds behavioral psychology absolutely fascinating, and came across uh, Jonathan Haidt's book, uh, The Righteous Mind. Um, And I think something kind of clicked there, like, oh, right, so moral foundations theory was developed in the context of trying to explain why people held the political beliefs that they did. But if you kind of take that one step further, you think, well, if the whole premise is that there are these kind of very fundamental gut check type of values that, whether we know it or not, shape the way we develop attitudes and uh, take in new information, decide whether or not to reject it. If, if, if that works for political issues, why wouldn't that also be applicable to, I mean, anything else really? Um, so that was, that was the thought that maybe, maybe the most obvious way in which these uh, moral values manifest is when we talk about politics, but maybe they also influence nonpartisan things like vaccine attitudes. So, with that in mind, she and her team started researching moral foundations theory, deeply researching it. So, this is probably a good time to explain the basics of that theory. Um, The Care Harm Foundation, which kind of is underscored by, you know, values regarding how kind you are to other people, how gentle you are, nurturing, things like that. Um, I, I like that they're very intuitively named. It's not too difficult to really understand, oh, well, what's in the CARE Foundation? Probably something related to caring about, you know, people. 
Um, you have the Fairness Cheating Foundation, so centering around values related to what's just, what's right, uh, what's proportional. Um, the Loyalty Betrayal Foundation, which is really underscored by values related to patriotism, related to uh, sacrificing for the group. Um, and there's this really interesting, to me, nuance with that particular foundation that um, how that value is sort of activated, so to speak, relates to whether or not the issue in question is re like relates to the perceived in-group um, that the person's a part of. Um, then you have the Authority Subversion Foundation, um, which underscores these values of kind of like there's this natural hierarchy to things, um, there's deference to legitimate authority, and I think legitimate is really the key here, um, as well as this kind of built-in respect for traditions. Um, you know, oh, well, this is the way it's always been done, that sort of thing. Um, and then finally, the Purity Degradation Foundation, um, which kind of has these two components, a little bit of a religious value, um, striving to, you know, live in this really uh, noble way, although, of course, that's not unique to religions. Um, and it, it also uh, has this kind of spiritual, my body is a temple component. Um, you know, I want to keep things very pure, very uh, untouched. Uh, very natural, might even say. Um, and the flip side of that relates to, um, it, it, I think this foundation, if I remember right, was actually born out of uh, discussed psychology, if you're familiar with that. Um, so kind of the, the flip side of the purity degradation foundation is this idea of gross, icky, contamination um, type thing. Um, and then they there are also several other candidates for potential other uh, thematic values, other moral foundations. Um, the one additional one that we also looked at in our work was the Liberty Oppression Foundation. So um, this kind of, it, 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 it encompasses feelings of resentment that you might feel towards perceived uh, oppression or perceived uh, restrictions of liberty. This might sound very familiar in today's climate. Um, and, it's, and, and this particular foundation often um, is sort of in tension with the authority foundation, um, as you might expect, which is why I really wanted to highlight that the authority foundation um, relates to perceived legitimate authorities and the Liberty Foundation, a, a really key part of that is perceived oppression. I know that they added that later because they, they really attempted to push they really were trying to, it wasn't as if liberty and oppression was never addressed by the first five. It just never seemed to fit cleanly within any bucket. So they're like, it deserves its own bucket. Right. I also dig that like when this was introduced, uh, psychology, especially, you know, psychology is, is, is a very Western thing. And there are a lot of cultures in the world that don't even teach psychology in their universities. Uh, it's got a very Western tradition to it as since a lot of it is also trying to like Prove in the beginning, a lot of it was like to prove or disprove a lot of Western philosophy's ideas. This comes along along with height, and he's like he also has that paper, which is the the rational dog and its emotional tail, mm -hmm. saying, "Hey, we are motivated by these these often unconscious, unbidden feelings, and 
that wasn't necessarily a new idea. That goes back to Freud and James and all the rest. But he was adding onto it. But what you say out of your mouth, like, may have nothing to do with any of that. Right. Like, like you're just articulating. You're trying to come up with a reason why you think, feel, and do things, and that might just be a a personal just so story. That is huge because when you didn't take in the moral foundations, and many of these are not. And maybe none of them are individualistic in their nature. They all seem to be ways, they seem to be group dynamics. They seem to be psychological mechanisms that, that make it easier to survive and thrive in groups, which already goes up against Western thinking and this individualistic thinking that, oh no, I, everything I think is what I think. I'm not being influenced by other people. Mm-hmm. But the idea that your values, the idea that all values are ways to get along with other people is, I can feel like, I can just feel my own internal, like, if I didn't already have read all this, I'd be like, I don't know. That's kind of weird. Like, like I I have values because I have seen the world. I've experienced it. And I'm a noble human being looking for right and wrong. Right. Um, <laughs> so what I'm trying to say is, have you, did you notice or have you felt, I have seen whenever I've tried to, like, show this to, to others, of all the things in psychology right now, this, has, this is the one that people push back against more than others, I feel like, because it feels a little grody. How do you feel? How do you? Well, no, I don't mean that. I mean, like, have you felt? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that reaction to it when you first introduced it? Did it fit very? Did you? Was it easy to adopt it for you and, and your and your people within your academic silo? When I first heard about this, it kind of made this very intuitive sense to me personally. Um, I think I think at least among the other epidemiologists that I've talked to. Um, I think there's kind of been mixed reactions. I think um, some of my colleagues that I've talked to about this are like, oh yeah, huh, that that makes a lot of sense, I, I guess. Um, and other, you know, other epidemiologists, other colleagues that I've talked with were like, I, I'm not really sure how I feel about that. I, I like to think we're all uh, very, very rational creatures. And, you know, like, yeah, I mean, I'm capable of separating, separating out my values and my emotions from facts and things like that. Um, and I, I think it's 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 an interesting point you bring up that sort of how we perceive ourselves, how what what we think about the ways we and other people think about and make decisions is definitely I think uh, in my unofficial observations that it's just it really influences whether or not we think moral psychology, um, these, this moral foundations theory, is actually at, at work. Well, the good news is Avnika didn't have to argue about this because she's a scientist. She could do research and gather evidence, and that evidence could speak for itself. And that is just what she did. Avnika Amin was interested in vaccine hesitancy and looking for ways to address it when a colleague showed her some research, which was built upon other research from 2013. In that research... Psychologists Rob Willer and Matthew Feinberg offered liberals a cash prize if they could create an argument for same-sex marriage that conservatives would find persuasive. So if you are a liberal, think about that for a second. What would be your argument for same-sex marriage if you knew you were talking to someone who was conservative? Now, on the other side, they offered the same deal to conservatives if they could create an argument that would persuade liberals to agree that English should be the national language. Now, if you're a conservative, imagine that. What sort of argument would you use to persuade a liberal? They found that both groups overwhelmingly made arguments in terms of their own moral foundations. 
for liberals, same-sex marriage was about equality and fairness. And so that's how they tried to persuade others. Try to be more fair. Try to think about equality. For conservatives, going English only was about tradition and unity and patriotism and respect. So they tried to use those arguments on liberals. Think about our traditions. Think about the respect you should have for our country. On both sides, only about 10% of subjects frame their persuasive message in the moral foundations of their opponents. And these arguments that they presented in their own moral foundations, they just didn't work. To further this research, Feinberg and Willer decided, what if we were to create some arguments that we could hand to people so that they could use those arguments against their ideological opponents, but we'd help them by framing them in the values of those people and not their own. So, for example, in the conservative argument in favor of same-sex marriage, they argued that LGBT Americans were fellow, loyal, patriotic citizens who served in the military and contributed to the economy. And they only wanted the same rights that other Americans enjoyed because that made America stronger. When they did that, conservatives showed significantly greater support for same-sex marriage than when the argument was framed the other way, upwards of 35% more than when it was framed on liberal moral framework. They found similar results when persuading liberals that English should be the language of the United States. Arguments that liberals rejected when built on conservative foundations became highly persuasive when rebuilt on liberal values like equality and fairness. Building on that work, in 2016, psychologist Christopher Walsko and his colleagues wanted to know if moral reframing could be used to change attitudes about climate change. They brought together a group of strongly liberal and strongly conservative subjects and told them they were interested in their opinions on global warming. Once they had their attitudes recorded, they told them that before answering some questions about this topic, they'd like the subjects to read a public service announcement. And for one group, this is exactly what it said. Show your love for all of humanity and the world in which we live by helping to care for our vulnerable natural environment. Help to reduce the harm done to the environment by taking action. By caring for the natural world, you're helping to ensure that everyone around the world gets to enjoy fair access to a sustainable environment. Do the right thing by preventing the suffering of all life forms and making sure that no one is denied their right to a healthy planet. Show your compassion. And that message was accompanied by the photo of someone holding a seedling sprouting from a dollop of dirt. A second group read this message. Show your love for your country by joining the fight to protect the purity of America's natural environment. Take pride in the American tradition of performing one's civic duty by taking responsibility for yourself and the land you call home. By taking a tougher stance on protecting the natural environment, you will be honoring all of creation. Demonstrate your respect by following the examples of your religious and political leaders who defend America's natural environment. Show your patriotism. This time, the message featured a photo of a bald eagle perched on a rock with a mountain range in the background. They had liberals and conservatives in both groups fill out a questionnaire that showed their willingness to engage in conservation and recycling efforts, and then they measured their resulting attitudes toward climate change. 
In the end, they found that liberals reported the same attitude strength after both messages. But conservatives, they reacted differently. For the first message, which emphasized the moral foundations of care and fairness, conservative attitudes didn't change, didn't budge at all. But for the second one, which emphasized loyalty, authority, and purity, and patriotism, not only did their attitudes shift in the direction of support, they often rose to the same level of support as the liberals. And this was a very exciting finding for Abnika Amin because it made her think, well, if moral reframing can be used to change people's attitudes about an evidence-based, fact-based issue like climate change, could it shift attitudes on an evidence-based, fact-based issue like vaccination? An issue that seemed similarly impervious to fact-based reasoning because, they hypothesized, it wasn't based on facts. It was based off attitudes, and those attitudes emanated from people's moral foundations. They couldn't help but feel the way they felt, but when trying to explain why they felt the way they felt, they articulated it in reasons. And those reasons were arguments that seemed reasonable to their peers. But the real reason why they felt the way they felt might be something that had more to do with their moral foundations than even the people making those arguments realized. And if so, these methods in this other study could be tweaked a bit. They could use moral reframing to persuade the vaccine hesitant. And that became the basis of a new study. What were sort of in the beginning were you seeing as correlations with these moral foundations? What are some things that, that seem to be attitudes uh, and val- seem to be values within that community that would Map, that would map on to some of these foundations? The, the hypothesis was really that, you know, maybe that there are differences in, because, you know, everyone has these values, but how, I guess, relevant they are to their decision-making may, may be different. Um, and so we were hypothesizing that maybe the, um, depending on how strong your vaccine hesitancy is, maybe there is some something different about your valuation of these values. Like maybe some values are more important um, than other values in the context of, of vaccines. So that was sort of our initial hypothesis. Um, and we, you know, did a did an online survey um, of parents who, who had at least one you know, young child under the age of 12. Um, and we basically gave them that questionnaire to assess the different moral foundations. And we asked vaccine attitudes and, you know, did some statistical analysis to see actually what was there. And it was was really interesting. Um, So what we did was we were comparing the strength of the endorsement of each one of these values among uh, people with relatively low vaccine hesitancy and compare that to people who had some moderate hesitancy and people who had high hesitancy. Um, so for so when we were comparing low versus medium hesitancy parents, um, really the biggest difference was with the, the purity foundation. So medium, uh, moderately hesitant parents were about twice as likely to have a high purity foundation score uh, as low hesitance individuals. Um, with the now now comparing like the high versus low hesitancy parents, um, we saw that same thing pop with purity that high hesitancy uh, parents were about twice as likely to have a strong, a really high purity foundation score. They're also about twice as likely to have a 
strong Liberty Foundation score and twice as likely to have a low Authority Foundation score. So that kind of with, with the more extreme vaccine hesitancy, that sort of highlights that inherent tension between the Liberty and the Authority Foundations, I think, quite nicely. To sum up, Amin sent surveys to a thousand parents with children under the age of 12 and asked those parents to rate themselves on their moral foundations. Then, separately, each parent filled out a questionnaire designed to measure their attitudes toward vaccination. These attitudes varied. Split three ways, the majority said they had no problem with vaccination, 11% said they were somewhat hesitant, and 16% said they were strongly opposed. And those percentages matched the attitude distribution of the general public in the United States. When Amin's team compared those parents' attitudes to their moral foundations, they found a striking correlation. People who were somewhat hesitant highly valued purity. And people who were very hesitant, people who are anti-vaxxers, highly valued purity, but also highly valued liberty, and also really expressed a strong disdain for authority. What was most interesting to me about that were sort of the foundations that didn't have a difference. Because I think something that... It- this is... A, I'm, I'm glad you just go ahead okay, and say it. Okay, great. It was in my head because it's like... I bet when you were starting this, you're like, it's got to be care and harm, right? right? It's got to be. Yeah. So there was no difference across all of the different, you know, the low, medium, high hesitancy categories. There was absolutely no difference in how likely someone was to have a high care score or a high fairness score. And if you think about it, the very traditional appeals that are not necessarily fact-based, but more maybe emotion-based, the appeals to vaccinate your your kids are based in, oh, well, you know, it's going to keep them safe. It's going to keep them healthy. You know, like you, you care about your kids, like get them vaccinated, that type of thing. Like so much of the messaging um, at that time. And I think even now relate is, is themed around the care foundation and the fairness foundation, whether that was deliberate or not. I, I don't think it was deliberate. I think that's just what makes sense to the people who designed those messages because those are the values they endorse. Uh, This is the big, this is it. Like this is the whole point of this moral reframing thing, which has come out of moral foundations is the idea that the reason you're so frustrated when you're talking to people about certain issues that you think should be fact-based is because they are fact-based. You're both working with the same facts. Mm -hmm. It's which moral foundation is then cherry picking through those facts to say, aha, aha. And when you're trying to message to someone, your natural inclination is to message to them within your own moral domain, because like you were saying, like a lot of people who are like, it's got to be about care because that's what's driving the way I feel about this. And you, this other person has a different uh, knob setting that's causing them to feel a different way in the presence of this information. And if you try to create communications that are to the your knob setting, you're preaching to the choir. You need a to create messaging that goes to their knob setting, which is going to seem ineffective to you because it is ineffective to you. Exactly. That's such a great way to put it. What did you find? What was this unique knob setting? Because you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's a a mix of purity, liberty, and authority in some some interesting dynamic. Right. And and that's sort of the the part that's really uh, difficult to assess because when we were doing these comparisons, it was sort of looking at each foundation in isolation when in reality, all of these foundations likely kind of work 
together, which is why I think that those those null results with the care and the fairness foundations are so interesting, because that's sort of getting at this idea that someone who is very much in favor of vaccinating children and someone who is um, maybe a bit more hesitant about getting their child vaccinated, it kind of implies that their knobs for the care foundation are in pretty much the same place. But the liberty knob is is that like that's where the difference is the liberty knob is different or the purity knob is different um and we kind of you know once once we got these results you know all of the messaging around not all of the messaging but a lot of the messaging around oh vaccines have these chemical toxins and everything that you know that's the purity foundation at work right that's oh vaccines are unnatural vaccines have chemicals so i don't want to put that in my child's like pure untouched very wholesome mm-hmm. body. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. Um, or some other concerns about like, you know, government uh, requiring childhood vaccines for entry to schools, right? Um, mm-hmm. If you are distrustful of authorities, for instance, um, or you ver- are, are very much in favor of being able, you know, the kind of my child, my choice my mentality, that's the authority and the Liberty Foundations right at work. So it's not that there's any difference in how much um, care, like concerns about, you know, well-being and, and safety are there. Mm-hmm. They're, they're pretty equally tuned. It's just the other considerations that are being pulled in that maybe, you know, someone, someone like me who is very much like, oh yeah, vaccines are great, is not going to be, pun not superintended, dialed into right? Like, it's like, yeah, it's not going to occur to me. It's how you yeah. care. I'm like, Oh, well, it's how you exactly. Care. Exactly. That's what's so beautiful about this is it gets, it's very meta at a certain yeah. level, but like both, both people with, if you have, they both have the same knob setting when it comes to right. care, which means, and so they are, they both care a whole lot about their kids. Exactly. Now, how do I, how do I express that drive? Well, my other knob settings come into play and like, mm-hmm. you know, you, uh, if you have this feeling about purity, uh, liberty, and a sort of kind of an interesting little bit of a disdain for authority in a way, at least uh, authority that you feel is like um, undeserved in this regard. Perhaps, yes. Uh, I can totally see it. I actually wrote a sentence out that made this all make sense to me, which is okay. uh, I can totally see where chemical, like, um, first of all, you already have these settings and you're bringing these settings to this new situation. And it just so happens that this is a situation that activates all three so strongly that you have a very strong reaction to it, which I think is really fascinating. And that uh, it's like having a, a in in your like science, you know, like having a a, a vulnerability to a certain uh, you know stimulus a, that will cause you to have a horrible response, which is what happens here. Imagine the person with these three settings, and you're being told. Uh, the, is the thought of chemicals delivered by the state via needles into the bodies of their children without their consent. Right. What do you think they're going to do? Yeah, of course they're going to react very strongly. And they're going to feel very strongly without choosing to do so. Mm-hmm. They're going to, it's not going to be a, a reasoned conclusion. It is a feeling that emanates bodily from them in a visceral way. And then they must, after that, articulate and reason their way to some sort of explanation and justification and rationalization for why they are feeling that way. Right. And that's where you get the whole thing. Yes. The whole thing comes from that. <laughs> yes. 
And there, there's only, and I would imagine this this knob setting's not very common, which is also why these people are not very common in the population. Last time I looked it up, there was 11% of the population would call themselves strongly anti-vaxxer. And I would imagine that if you were to switch it from anti-vaxxer to how many people have this knob setting, it probably would be close. That's my speculation. Probably, maybe about 11% of people have this knob setting. That's just my speculation. Maybe. I, 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 I'm going to give you this, the classic scientist answer and say <laughs> that is well outside my area. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. More outside mine than yours. So, Okay. You found all this stuff, uh, and in the sort of discussion section of your paper, my favorite part of this whole paper is you're like, because this was done before in a previous research, there's been previous research in moral reframing where they tested messages that were within the domain of the morality or the value systems or the uh, the moral foundation knob slider things of the um, subjects, and it worked. It had a very nice um effects and they were using it on climate change and they were saying like you know if you want a strong country that can defeat the russians you need a healthy forest right. with a great ocean yes. and you know it, it works uh versus saying you know love the love nature and love the trees right. and don't that's you, don't not you want to take care on, of it and everything yeah <laughs> don't spit on things come on and you know and they're like you know that reaction gets you can almost feel they're like i'll spit on whatever i want this is public property you suggest there's a way, just a suggestion, further research should be done kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really about, uh, to, to pull a, a right-wing talking point, it's about speaking to their values. <laughs> you know, because it, 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 it really is. is. It, it really is. is. Um, and it's, I, I think... It's, it's, I think the Purity Foundation is, is perhaps the, the first place to start because that seems to be um, the knob that is different for anyone for, for everyone that's more than like a little bit hesitant um, and, and, and kind of figuring out ways to address those, those talking points. Um, there's the danger of trying to, trying to uh, bring up those values as in messages that sort of rebut maybe messages, uh, uh, vaccine hesitancy talking points about like, oh, well, the vaccines are, feel, uh, vaccines are, are full of toxic chemicals. And it's, it, I think it'd be easy to fall into the trap of, oh, well, these chemicals are, are actually like they're made in sterile conditions and, 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 and to try and rebut those. But I, oh, that's great. That's a great point. Yeah. But I'm not really sure that that would actually work if, if we sort of extrapolate a little bit here. And I'm very aware that extrapolation can be dangerous, but if we extrapolate a little bit here and go back to um, Brendan Nyan's misinformation correction study that you brought up earlier. Oh, hey there. I have to drop in to tell you that we didn't record that part, but we had a conversation before we started the recording about how Brendan Nyhan and Jason Reifler, who've been on the show a couple of times, did a study into hesitancy to vaccinate over the concerns that vaccines cause autism. They do not cause autism, by the way. But people who said that was why they were hesitant to vaccinate, when they were educated on the matter, when they were shown lots and lots of information that showed them that there was no risk of autism when we got vaccinated. Those subjects in that study then reported that they no longer believed that. They no longer believed that vaccines caused autism, but their intent to vaccinate did not change. In fact, for some of them, it got more intense. And they found that you can update someone's beliefs, but in doing so, it might not affect their attitude at all. In fact, it could cause their attitude to strengthen. Right. 
their knowledge scores increased about, oh, right, this vaccines cause autism myth is in fact a myth. Yeah, I know that. But their actual intent to vaccinate decreased in that study, right? So I think by trying to craft messages that rebut uh, common talking points using moral foundations theory, I think we could easily fall into that that trap again. Um, What I think it makes more sense to do is highlight the positive aspects of those foundations that are present in vaccines, you know, so, so something like, uh, you know, vac, you know, get, getting your child vaccinated helps them stay like clean and uh, free, you know, disease free. And like, they're not full of, you know, like they're not, their body is not going to be full of dirty germs, which I recognize has very problematic implications for those of us in the public health community who are like, you know, don't do that. And and why, we, you know, it, it brings up issues of, well, isn't this sort of stigmatizing people who do have diseases a little bit? It, that's a whole other conversation um, that is, that is well above my pay grade. <laughs> this is sometimes this is, this is referred to as the dark arts. Um, if, and I like legitimately have I have a show that I haven't finished yet. You were I had some scientists refer to this as the dark arts uh, of a persuasion, which is to speak to the person's uh, intentions and their reasoning, not to the facts, not to the, not to that, not to these concrete things you're talking about. Uh, they call it um, technique rebuttal instead of topic rebuttal, and they also but they also say this is the dark arts, as Schopenhauer would say. Uh, you you here's what you said in the paper. Um, Boost your child's natural defenses against disease. <laughs> Keep your child pure of infections. Vaccinate. I, uh, I think I'd forgotten I'd wrote written exactly that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's. I like that you use the word pure. Right, yeah. right, pure, pure. I, you really I, threaded the needle with it. I want to say uh, you did a little. You got right in there with right on what little not too far of this, not too right. far of that with the word pure. If this was Mad Men, they would have. Uh, given you an award for this because it's a perfect it's a perfect way to get everything in there in one sentence. It's really good. Thank you. Uh, th- there's another one here which is th- like playing with the Liberty Foundation. So I mean, if if we're talking about doing a one-two punch, uh, the way you wrote it is uh, take personal control of your child's health. Vaccinations can help your child and others be free to live a happy and healthy life. <laughs> uh, and then you put that on with. Uh, Pictures of kids playing, <laughs> so good. Uh, and, you t- and the purity one you talked about, uh, like show a child with measles. And maybe um, if I was doing this, if I was brainstorming with you, I'd be like, we'll CG the measles like clean- disappearing, and then the then, and then the child runs and jumps on stage right. and is waving a flag or something. So <laughs> there's all sorts of ways to do it. But yeah, uh, I love these ideas. And I love that you also suggest putting them in places like public schools and libraries. And the overall thing you're saying here, which is the counterintuitive thing, which is odd considering we're coming up on an election and everyone's thinking about this kind of stuff right now, is, um, and I'm asking this as sort of a broad question to apply this to the coronavirus vaccine that will be in our lives eventually. Is your advice, knowing all this, uh, from from just this paper, I understand it's one paper, but it, it's backed by a lot of foundational research and literature. What would you be your recommendation if you were be if you were asked to stand before the High Council of Earth to help them distribute this vaccine about messaging it to people? Well, I think my very generic advice would be to 
speak to their values. Um, I, I, I think first understanding what values are are at play because of course the you know what I described about the differences in the purity and the liberty and the authority knobs that probably holds true for all vaccines, but it was in the context of childhood vaccines specifically. And so maybe there are different different uh, knobs at play, different foundations at work when it comes to deciding to vaccinate your child versus vaccinate yourself. Um, so, you know, do, do the foundational work, kind of get ahead of, I mean, we're already seeing a whole host of reasons people are saying they're not gonna get a coronavirus vaccine. Um, so do the work now, figure out what are the underlying values at work there. Hopefully they're the same because there has been a decent amount of work uh, done already to figure out how to craft messages using these foundations. Rather than trying to rebut any one particular concern, um, focusing on speaking to the values, you know, the values that are, are important in this situation and crafting broader messaging around those values. Because, you know, if, 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 if you've ever had a discussion with someone who has a very different point of view um, on any topic, really, you know, you can, you can rebut individual arguments that they make and they will come right back at you with another one if this is a, a mm -hmm. position that is really important to them. So not trying to address every single possible reason people may not want to get a coronavirus vaccine. Uh, instead focusing on the, on the promotion of the positive aspects of these values and underscoring how a coronavirus vaccine is congruent with the values that are important to them, I think. Um, also having the ideal conditions to stimulate these values, perhaps in the messaging. <laughs> well, I, I would say express them, right? Because like you... Yeah. When it comes to this, what you're really asking the person is to is you're you're helping open them up to to like you know they're in a way they're trapped in, in this this like this uh, illusory box of my values can only be expressed in this one way, and you're giving them the option. You're not telling them how to think. You're saying your your values could there's you are not a this is not necessarily opposed to your values. So you um, your values could be expressed by not getting vaccinated or by getting vaccinated, depending on how you look at it, which frees you up mm -hmm. to look at it in a new way and then make a more reasoned uh, response to right. it. Right. Because, because at the end of the day, if you are crafting messages that stimulate these values, you're still not telling people what to think. You're presenting the same information in a different way. You're presenting the same information in a way that makes them more likely to listen to it. That's the biggest benefit of understanding um, moral psychology is being able to take the same piece of information and present it in a different way. So you're not manipulating facts. You're not distorting facts. You're not, you are still presenting the same facts, just in a way that people are more likely to listen to.
That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You can find Dr. Paul Offit at paul-offit.com. That's O-F-F-I-T.com. You can find Joe Hansen at It's Okay to Be Smart on YouTube. I highly recommend it. And you can also find him at Dr. Joe Hansen on Twitter. That's at D-R Joe Hansen, H-A-N-S-O-N. On Twitter, you can find J Van Babel at at J V A N B A V E L at J Van Babel on Twitter. And you can also find Avdika Amin at Vivacious Vax on Twitter. That's V I V A C I O U S V A X on Twitter. You can find links to everything we talked about in this episode over at youarenotsosmart.com. We can also find transcripts, previous episodes, and more. Previous episodes are also available on Omni, iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. To support the show, head to patreon.com slash youarenotsosmart. Just $1 a month gets you the show with zero ads. And everything else you want, you can get at the higher amounts. Just contributing a little bit more and you'll get uh, t-shirts, books, posters, and more. You can also follow the show on Twitter, at NotSmartBlog. Follow me, at David McCraney. On Facebook, it's You Are Not So Smart. And on YouTube, it's also You Are Not So Smart. The opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. And the background music in this episode came from Kevin McLeod. You can find all sorts of cool stuff from him over at Incompetech.com. And Espanto. You can find Espanto on Bandcamp. Espanto, do your thing. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.